Can you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Exodus chapter 20? Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be focusing today on verse 14, but um, I'm going to read all of the Ten Commandments. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find one uh, in the back of the pew that's just in front of you. It's typically the middle black book. And if you flip open to page number 61, you should be at the passage for today. Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to begin with verse 1 and read down to the end of verse 17. And then I'm going to circle back and just read verse 14 one more time. This is what God's word says. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You shall not commit adultery. This morning we've come to the seventh commandment, which means that we are squarely in the second half of these ten words. And we are in what is typically referred to as the second table of the law. As you're probably aware, these ten commandments were written on two, two tablets of stone. And maybe you've seen depictions of them that kind of have rounded tops. Anyway, there's, there's two of those. And there's a couple of possibilities as to how the commandments were laid out on these stones. For example, some scholars think that, um, that all of the commandments were written on both stones. And so what you have, in effect, are duplicate copies. And this makes sense, especially in a, a covenantal kind of a context. Um, you understand this even if you were to enter into some sort of business agreement um, you've you got to have a copy for each party. And it seems like perhaps this is why there are two tablets of stone, one copy for each party. 
The traditional view, however, holds that uh, roughly half of the Ten Commandments are written on the first tablet of stone, and the last half were engraved on the second tablet. And related to this is how Jesus divided up these commands. When asked about which of these was the greatest commandment, Jesus replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, uh, this is our Lord summarizing the substance of the law and dividing them up into these kind of two large categories, love for God and love for neighbor. Indeed, when we look at the Ten Commandments kind of with those lenses, we see that the first four commandments have to do with our love for God. It has to do with how we relate properly with God. And the last six have to do with our right relating to our fellow man. Uh, so the first table of the law has to do with how we demonstrate our love for God. And the second table of the law has to do with how we show love to our neighbor. So when Jesus says, and the second is like it, he wants us to understand that there's an inseparable connection between these two tables. There's a, there is a proper ordering. It, it's, it's right that we would first love the Lord by worshiping him only and by reverencing his name and the like. Indeed, it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the foundation for all of life, so it rightly becomes, comes first. And if we are right related to him, then that is going to result, hopefully, in right relationships with our fellow man. And I, can, I trust you can readily see the converse of what I'm saying there. People wonder, why is there so much conflict and hatred and wickedness in the world? Why are people cussing each other out in the Walmart aisles? And how are people able to walk out of Target with just armloads of stuff that they haven't paid for? Why do 50% of marriages end in divorce? We, we wonder all of these things and more. And the answer is actually pretty basic, and that is that there is no fear of God before people's eyes. How, you see, because how you think about and how you act towards other people is downstream of how we think about and act towards the Lord. So it's crucial that we would remember this connection as we uh, continue to make progress in these Ten Commandments. Yes, we are squarely in the, the second table of the law. We're focusing on how we can love our neighbor and rightly relate to our fellow man. But it would be a mistake if we considered these in isolation from the first table. The, the connection between the two can be seen quite clearly, I think, in this seventh commandment. And I hope to show you some of those connections. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So let's take a closer look at it, and we'll do so by borrowing our outline from last week. Um, Stacy mentioned that preachers work hard during the week. Um, well, that is true, but 
there is no sense in reinventing the wheel, right? If an outline worked great one week, why not just keep it, use it again? And that's what I hope to do uh, today. And I will, if the clock cooperates, I will add uh, a fourth point to it, just so that you don't think I'm slacking here. Okay, so Lord willing, in the time that we have this morning, I want to show you four H's as it relates to adultery. Four H's as it relates to adultery. And first, I want to show you the heinousness of adultery. H-E-I-N-O-U-S means hatefully or shockingly evil, utterly odious, abominable, in case you weren't here last week. And, and chances are, uh, because we live in such a secular and sexualized age, uh, we don't see adultery as ugly as it truly is. Ours is a naturalistic age where all of us, no matter what age we are, all of us, and this has been the case for at least the last hundred years, we've been taught evolution as fact. We've been told that we are essentially animals. And, and in the animal kingdom, they'll tell you, monogamy is rare. Uh, to restrict yourself to one mate in, in this way of thinking is totally unrealistic. It's unnatural even. Young uh, women in the emerging red pill community are told that if they want a high value man, which is typically defined as you know an alpha male who makes over 100,000 a year and who's over six feet tall and good looking, if they want such a high value man, they'll have to be fine sharing him. That's, wh that's what they're told. And you know when he steps out, they, they should really just turn a blind eye because that's just par for the course. And the numbers on adultery are, are a little uncertain, and I think this is largely due to the, the problems with trying to get accurate reporting. But it appears to be in the range of something like a quarter to half of marriages having at least one adulterous partner at some point in the marriage. And the more shocking number to me is that for both men and women, something like 68 to 74% say they would commit adultery if it was guaranteed that they'd never get caught. So there is still some vestige of shame attached to adultery, but our hearts apparently are blind to the ugliness of adultery. To see the true heinousness of adultery, it's, it's necessary, I think, that we would first understand the true holiness and honor of marriage. It's, it's helpful to see ugly when you can see beauty. And I think it would be helpful if we could focus on the undefiled beauty of the marriage bed. And we see first and, and best, we see this, I think, in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, you can flip back there. It's not too far back. Genesis chapter 2, we'll pick up the story in, uh, in verse 18. Where the Lord God says, it is not good that man should be alone. And in the context there, that, that's a pretty shocking thing to hear. Given Genesis 1, where 
everything that God says as he steps back from every single day of creation, he says, it is good. Behold, it is, it's good. And now for the first time, there is something that is not good. And what is not good is that the man would be alone. And so the Lord took it upon himself to remedy that situation. He determined to make a helper for the man that was fit for the man, that was corresponding, that was suitable. And so we read that Adam was put under heavy anesthetic, and while he was conked out, the Lord took a bone from his side, and from it he fashioned a beautiful woman. And maybe some of you are thinking about giving someone a personalized gift this Christmas. I don't know if you're thinking about giving someone an engraved bracelet or maybe a custom-made T-shirt or maybe a monogram towel. Do people still give out monogram towels? I don't know. I'm trying to give you some gift ideas here. Personal gifts are, are always fantastic. They're wonderful to give and they're wonderful to receive. You you can know just right away that there's an extra amount of thought that someone's put into your gift. Now, you want to talk about a wonderful, personalized gift. How about this woman that God custom-made and gave to Adam? When he sees her, he breaks out into song. He says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And I just wonder, men, do you remember that feeling when your bride was walking down the aisle to you? I, I'll never forget it. You know, you, you feel like breaking out into song, but for me, I just broke out into tears. And I remember what a, what a personalized gift my wife is to me. She's handpicked by the Lord Almighty just for me. And he couldn't have given me a better, someone that's a better fit for me. It's, it's right that we would see that first marriage as a model of our own. And that's why in Genesis um, chapter 2, verse 24, this is why you see Moses, uh, who's the narrator here, he kind of breaks away from the narration of the story. And he... He does so to show us that Adam and Eve's marriage, this first marriage, is actually supposed to be the paradigm for all future marriages. So Moses says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, holding fast, one flesh. Those are the, the key terms there. And what beautiful pictures those are as well. Holding fast, that's, that's an embrace. But it, it's much more than that. It's a, it's a possessing. It's a, it's a death grip. It's a till death do us part grip. I don't know why they call it wedlock, but that's a pretty good term, wedlock. It's holding someone so close that there's no possibility that they could drift, drift away or that you could drift away or that someone could try to wedge themselves between you two. Th this is an embrace of exclusivity. 
And th this language persists in our traditional wedding vows. You know, uh, I don't want to get off on a rant here, but some modern couples like to make up their own vows, and I usually don't like that. And that's because it's hard for them to say things better and more meaningfully and with the right kind of covenantal language that uh, we've been, that have been passed down. Um, there's good language uh, that, that comes with the tradition, including this. This is what we promised, to have and to hold, to have and to hold from this day forward and we also say forsaking all others to be faithful unto the other person as long as you both shall live. I love the, the title that Pastor Matt Chandler gave to his material on marriage. He did a sermon series and a book out of the Song of Solomon, and he called it The Mingling of Souls. I like that. That's a, that's a really great description of the two becoming one flesh. And this mysterious kind of union happens on the soul level between a man and his wife. And it's not just on the level of soul. It's th there's a physical union that happens too. And that physical union not only consummates that one flesh relationship, but in, in, in an ongoing way, it commemorates it and it cultivates it. I'm trying to speak a little delicately here, given our context, but I hope you can see what I'm, I'm saying. By, by God's good design, sexual intimacy is a sort of superglue for two souls. And we're invited uh, by God who has designed this this way, we're, we're invited to enjoy the wife of our youth, to delight in her, and vice versa. Like Solomon and the Shulamite, if you've got the stomach to read Song of Solomon, you'll see a, a beautiful picture of marriage and, and love and intimacy. And the Shulamite woman could say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And in the same way, the author to the Hebrews insists that the marriage, that marriage be held in honor among all of us and that the marriage bed be undefiled. This is God's good design. Do you see the, the beauty in it, the goodness in it? How disgusting then, how heinous is it for a husband or wife to let go of their spouse and to give themselves to a, a third party the, for the mingling of body and soul with, with some other person. If marriage is a covenantal relationship, and it is, it's, it's formed on the basis of solemn vows that are made to each other with God as witness and in the presence of many other witnesses. If that's what marriage is, covenantal, then adultery is nothing less than treachery to that covenant. Marriage's covenantal shape is one of the big reasons why, in God's eyes, this is such a heinous sin. And this is why he says that he will surely judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. Because covenant 
unfaithfulness, which is what that is, that is exactly the opposite of who God is and what God requires. God himself, you understand, is full of steadfast love and loyalty and faithfulness. And this is precisely what he demands of his covenant people. Let me try to say it this way. This seventh commandment is in the second table of the law. And it corresponds to the first commandment that's in the first table of the law. Okay? So adultery is, is on the horizontal plane. What having another God before the one true and living God, the covenant God, is vertically. Do you see? And this is why idolatry is described in scripture as spiritual adultery and whoring after other gods. Israel's first and, and most egregious instance of this is only hours away, maybe days away. I'm not exactly sure, but it's close. They're about to engage in spiritual adultery, and that's going to be characteristic of them for all of their existence. The golden calf incident is like the, the first and the worst. It's going to be the first in a long line of mistresses for this covenant people. And because of this inseparable connection between our relationship with God and man, between the first and second tables, because how we think and act about God is so closely related to how we think and act towards other people, so too will this people, the people of Israel, have a long history of being unfaithful to their marriage partners. And throughout the history of, of Israel, adultery and divorce are going to be commonplace. I look back, and uh, this time last year, we were uh, in the book of Malachi, and we were talking about adultery and divorce then. Um, and then I look back and the year before we were talking about all sorts of sexual immorality. Um, this is what you get when you come to Grace Baptist Church during Advent season. All right? Jesus was asked about divorce once or twice during his ministry. And answering, Jesus held up God's good design. Genesis 2, he took that same tack. As for divorce, Jesus explained that Moses permitted it because of the hardness of these people's hearts. It's a, it was a sort of concession. It wasn't endorsing it, but it was like it, these people were intent on it, and so it's messier to not, I guess. I don't know. It was a concession by the Lord, by Moses, because of how incorrigible Israel was on this issue of faithfulness to their spouse. But citizens of Jesus' kingdom know they may not divorce their wives or their husbands. Except, Jesus says, except, and here he is giving one exception to the no divorce rule, and that is in the case of sexual immorality, adultery. Do you see that the, the heinousness of adultery can be seen 
by the fact that this is Jesus' one exception. It's one of the very rare exceptions to God's strict no-divorce policy, and it's allowed because of how serious a sin adultery is. It's a, it's a deadly blow to the, the very center of, a, of the marriage covenant. As Moses will go on to legislate, the punishment for people that are caught in adultery is death. Breaking the seventh commandment is a capital offense. It's the same outcome as breaking the sixth commandment. And as we saw last week with murder, the severity of the punishment hopefully helps us understand better just how heinous the crime is. If you have to pay with your life, how great a crime it must be. There are still some countries today in our world who stone adulterers. And we, we could certainly debate whether that's the proper thing uh, to do whether it would be right or wrong for a government to implement that punishment to fit that crime, we, we could certainly debate that. But, but your knee-jerk reaction to that is what I'm mostly interested in. Okay, When you hear that some countries still stone adulterers, isn't it true that your, your first and maybe your lasting opinion is, that's barbaric? Let me guess, it's... Uh, it's these are Middle Eastern countries, right? Let me guess, it's the Muslims, right? Well, that stands to reason because they're, they're savages. Isn't that, isn't that how you think? You don't have to admit that out loud, but I know that that's probably what you're thinking. And if so, then that's quite a tell. It, it shows that you don't think adultery is that big of a deal. Yes, it's bad, but it's not that bad. You, you'd be very quick to see the savagery in the judgment of adultery, but you'd be relatively blind to the savagery that is adultery. Do you allow the possibility that, that we have bought into the lies of our age? in reference to sexual activity outside of marriage? Do you allow that, that maybe our consciences have been dulled by just con the constant drumbeat of how normal it is? Do you wonder if, if, if perhaps our, our gag reflex has been stifled by exposure to all sorts of euphemisms that are used, like she cheated, or he's having an affair, or he's stepping out, or they have an open relationship. These are, all of these have the, have the effect of reducing adultery just to the status of a small peccadillo at worst. And at best, it sounds pretty, pretty nice, pretty normal. We are, we're, we're a lot more taken in by that than we would like to admit. And into this cultural mess, the word of God thunders with clarity and with severity and with simplicity. Again, it's just two words in Hebrew. No adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. But maybe you're thinking, 
oh, oh, I could never. And if that is what you're thinking, then it's definitely time to move on to our second point. Let's see the heart of adultery. The heart of adultery. It's, it's Jesus, again, who helps us get to the heart of adultery, just like he did with murder. And he does this most powerfully and most memorably on his, in his Sermon on the Mount, which I suggested to you last week was where Jesus stood on this mountain as a second Moses, as a new Lord and a new lawgiver. This, this sermon on, on this mountain was a sort of Sinai for new covenant saints, if I could put it that way. And one of the ways is that we can see this is if we pay close attention to the comparison, to the, the, actually the strong contrast that Jesus makes between what Moses said long ago and what Jesus is now saying as Lord and lawgiver. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, if you, if you doubt this, you'll, you can turn there and follow along and make sure that I'm being accurate here. But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Yes, we, we've heard that. That's the seventh commandment verbatim. But then notice this strong antithesis. But I say to you, and just if you just stop there for a second, I want you to just notice the audacity of that kind of a statement. This is one of the Ten Commandments that he's quoting. He's, he's referencing something that's like one of the highest and holy things in Scripture, the Ten Commandments. And he's about to say, he's saying, that you've heard that but I say sheesh the audacity unless of course Jesus has the authority to do something like that and spoiler alert he does but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart Oh, ouch. The, these Ten Commandments are largely concerned with legislating outward activity. Not, not exclusively. We'll see a, a bit of, we'll see a bit of the internal stuff, especially in the Tenth Commandment. But, but largely, largely what is regulated here is, is the activity, the outward activity. It's what's, what's, what, G, what God is talking about here in the Ten Commandments is this outward physical offense. And if, if, that's what's, if that's what we're talking about here today, then, you know, most of us can just kind of wipe our shoulders and say we're good, guiltless on this point. But the Lord Jesus is interested in our hearts, not just our behaviors. And the Lord Jesus is interested first in exposing our hearts. In my late teens and, and early adulthood, I worked in the plumbing trade. I don't know, some of you may, may not have known that. I think my wife hates it, to be honest with you, when we go back to my hometown. 
because when we're driving down the streets, I'm pointing out all of the homes that I've been in. And uh, after a couple of streets, that's pretty annoying, especially because I've been in the majority of them. In a small town, you, you've, been, you've been on all the farms, you've been on most of the homes fixing wells or pumps or septic systems or whatever. So I've been in a lot of homes. Mo more specifically, I've been in a lot of basements. And I found that in a lot of homes, the basement is dark and dank and nasty. It's clear that the homeowner almost never goes down there, unless, of course, the water pump fails. And then they're kind of forced to, and then they lead me down the basement, and they flick on the lights, and, and right away they're apologetic, they're, they're ashamed. It may very well be a beautiful house, you know, from the street level on the ground level, but the cellar, disgusting. Jesus isn't so much interested in outward appearances. He's not even really concerned about outward conformity. When Jesus steps into the house, he makes a beeline for the basement. And he flicks on the lights and the mice scatter. And when we descend with him, the stairs into our hearts, the, you know, the foul, musty odor hits us square in the face. And we're ashamed. And we stand condemned. The Lord Jesus understands that the, our hearts and our minds are the theater in which our deepest longings are all played out. So sure, you've may, you maybe have never physically been with another person other than your spouse, but you likely have a harem in your head. Isn't it true that you've given yourself, body and soul, to other people in the theater of your mind? And I'm not, I'm not even just talking about kind of nameless, faceless, abstract people that sometimes pop, pop up in our dream. I'm talking about actual people, folks that you know, people that you work with, maybe even fellow members of your church. If, if she smiled at you, if, if he really talk to you and really listen to you, chances are that later on you're going to take them to bed, at least in your brain. You play out all of these fantasies in your head. And they're not really dreams. I'm not using the word dreams because dreams tend to control you. But that's, that's not how these go. These are more like stage plays that you're the, you're the director for. You're in complete control of the cast of characters, the dialogue, the acting. And if we're going to be honest, most of your plays would carry an X rating. The command comes to us, thou shall not commit adultery. And we all stand, every one of us, condemned. Our hearts condemn us. And because we've committed such heinous sin, we stand to receive the death penalty for such savagery, for such brutality to the covenant. There, there's, no, there's no more appropriate punishment than death, even eternal death. 
The word of God cannot be clearer on this matter. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says that God most assuredly will punish adulterers. In describing the beauty and the purity of the new heavens and the new earth, the Apostle John assures us that nothing unclean, and we could add no one unclean will enter it. Outside are the dogs and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and the adulterers. Likewise, the Apostle Paul is crystal clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9, when he writes, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men or women who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't lie to yourself. Not going to happen. Not going to enter the kingdom of God. That's the bad news. And we wonder, is there any good news? Is there any hope for adulterers? And so we'll take this as our third point. The hope for adulterers. Be encouraged, friends. There is hope for adulterers in the gospel. In our despair, we might be tempted to stop at verse 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6 about how no adulterers are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But we should keep reading. Verse 11 of that chapter says, And such were some of you. I, it's hard to even imagine more hopeful words strung together than that. And such were, past tense, some of you. That's your history. Maybe some of you have that in your history. All of us, if we're going by Jesus' standard, have adultery in our history. But what about now? Paul says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. It turns out that it's a very gracious thing for the Lord Jesus to flick the lights on in the cellar of our souls. Yeah, it's shameful, no, no doubt about it, to see so much mold and mildew and mice and cobwebs, but he does it for our good. It turns out that Jesus is a master not a master plumber, he's a, he's a master justifier. And it turns out the Holy Spirit of God is a master sanctifier. He's a, God's specialty, it seems, is to, is to wash and cleanse sinners in the blood of Christ. You know what the word justified means, right? It means to de be declared righteous. Even though we've just admitted that we're adulterers, that we're guilty, how can the guilty ever be declared righteous? And it's because of a great exchange that happens, whereby all of your sin, and name it specifically, all of your lust, all of your adultery has been placed on Jesus Christ. And he bears it on his body, on that tree, for you, in your place. 
and satisfies the wrath of God that rightly comes against your sin, your adultery, your lust. That's the trade. Jesus takes my sin and deals with it and pays for it, satisfies God's wrath for it. And not only that, you wonder, what do I get in return? I get Jesus' righteousness. I get his perfect record of covenant faithfulness and love and loyalty. That's, that's mine. That's, that's in my account when they look me up in, in heaven. It says, justified, not, not just not guilty, but righteous because of the finished work of Christ. And, and I'm holding this out for you today. Perhaps you've never understood this or received this or believed this. I'm saying to you that by faith in the finished work of Christ, you can be justified freely by his grace. You can have your sins fully forgiven. And then to be sanctified means to be made holy, to be washed, to be cleansed from all impurity. And so thorough is the Spirit's work that he cleanses every spot and every stain. So you don't have to permanently be marked by the mess that you've made of your marriage. You, you can be marked permanently and sealed forever by the Holy Spirit who sanctifies. There's some beautiful examples in scripture of, of former adulterers, now justified and washed. I'm thinking of that Mary who had something of a reputation around town. She was a homewrecker. But she loved Jesus. She was always around Jesus. And people would say, Jesus, if you really knew who, what kind of girl this was that's hanging around you, you would want nothing to do with her. But Jesus did know, and he wanted something to do with her. And one day, out of such great appreciation for all that Jesus was for her and had done for her, and she didn't even realize yet the whole of what Jesus would do for her. She broke a jar of expensive perfume, and she anointed him with it, and she wiped him clean with her hair. What, what love, what adoration. And that, that's what's possible from a person who recognizes the depths of their sin, the true heinousness of their sin, and not, not just that, but the true beauty of the Christ who has saved And then there's this other woman. There's some textual issues with this passage, and scholars aren't exactly sure if it even should be included in the canon or not. I, I don't really know. I'm not going to solve that today. All I know is that it sure sounds a lot like Jesus. It's the story of a woman who was caught in adultery, and the people, the men, who caught her are ready to stone her. They're ready to give her the due punishment for her sin. And Jesus stoops over and he doodles something in the sand. There's all kinds of 
mystery and speculation. What is he drawing? What is he writing? I don't know exactly. Maybe he was naming names. I don't know. But, but all, as always, Jesus got to the heart of the matter, and he made the men realize what he's made us realize today, which is that none of us are without sin in this matter. So when those, when those dudes scatter, Jesus is reported to have said to the woman, hey, where are those people that are condemning you? And uh, she says they're gone. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And those are the most amazing words you could ever hear from Jesus. No condemnation. Now I dread. What shall we say to these things? If, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. And so Jesus says to the woman, and he says to us, go and sin no more. Your, your lives from this point out are to be characterized by faithfulness and cleanness and, and fleeing sexual immorality and adultery. And if I had time, I would tell you one more H as it pertains to adulterers, or should I, said, should I say former adulterers, sanctifying adulterers. I don't have time to get into all of the, the practical helps, but I, I want to just give you two things to think about here. And, and maybe this will be good fodder for meditation. This will be good discussion for your small groups. If you want to live a life of holiness in this respect, is there any help? Is there any practical help? And I would just refer you, since I'm going to run out of time, I would refer you to um, the proverb study that we've been doing uh, with the help of Jim Neuheiser. Uh, the Proverbs has so much help for um, people that are tempted by adultery. But here, let me just boil down some help, some advice to you, and I'll give it to you in two categories. And the first is, number one, starve your lust. Starve lust. Lust is described in scripture as, a, as an appetite, something that just is screaming out like your stomach is right about now, to be fed. And you know, you, you have more control over your appetites than you think that you do. Don't listen to the world that says that you're just an animal, that you're just kind of a slave to all of your passions and natural desires. Don't forget about the fact that you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. And that spirit teaches you to say no when your lusts are begging you to say yes. And you, you think about, I, I, I can tell you about how I, this year, this is a monumental year for me because I actually enjoy drinking water now. 
That might seem very strange to you. But there was a time in my life, a year ago, where <laughs> I found water to be boring and disgusting. I much prefer Dr. Pepper. The odd Mountain Dew. But, but that's destroying me. Water is actually good for me, and I discovered that I can actually say no to Mountain Dew or to Dr. Pepper cravings, and I can learn to enjoy something that actually is, is good for me. And so when you're, and, and, and when you're drinking Dr. Pepper multiple times a day, which I didn't, okay, I don't want to make myself sound too bad, but you know you you can get into these you can get into these ruts of just like yeah when you're drinking Dr Pepper water is disgusting. But when you say no to to junk food, you you can actually start to enjoy the stuff that is good for you. And some some never make any kind of progress in terms of their lust and adultery because and the adultery that's in their heart because they're they're never saying no. And, and you think about, just take an inventory of what you watch, and what you read. And I'm not even just talking about like looking at explicit websites or whatever. I'm talking about just the average run-of-the-mill TV show that's standard fare on any given channel. And what you'll find is that there's, there's all kinds of material there that is just feeding your lust. And it's, it, it's different. It, it's different for men and women, perhaps. Although I think we make too much of the differences. But, you know, there, there's all kinds of visual stuff for men to feed their lusts on, even without going searching for it. But, you know, women, maybe that doesn't quite do it for you. But you, you, you can find, you, you read, like, all kinds of disgusting books that are feeding lust. And maybe it's not explicit, but maybe it's just like, a, 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 like in a soap opera, a guy with a, a suit on who doesn't, he's always around. He doesn't seem to have a job. Anyway, he's always around and he's like relating and he's talking and that's, that's attractive. And you, you read these books about these romance. I don't know. I, I haven't read them, but I can just, I know enough from the cover. You know, it's some big, strong dude without a shirt on to some girl like this. <laughs> okay. And that is a sort of pornography for the female heart. It's a way to feed the female lust. And, and you might... You might stay away from those kind of books in the bookstore or on the magazine rack at, at, um, at the grocery store. You, you get your books from Christian book distributors. And, uh, you know, it, it, it features like pioneers or like Amish people. So how, ca I mean, how can you get any more wholesome than that? Oh, you can get a lot more wholesome than that. That that's designed to to feed your lusts. 
even it does it even if it does it in a really polite and Christian way. And I'm saying you can starve your lusts and you can you can say no. The Holy Spirit teaches you to say no. Starve your lust. There's multiple ways to do that. But do it. But that's not enough. Jesus tells us this too. It's not enough to just put off. It's not enough to just sweep the house clean. No, we, we need to put on in, in the place. And so don't just starve your lust, but feed love. Feed love. Love for God? Because those two are related. If you have no fear of God before your eyes, then you're going to give yourself to, to anything. But if you, if you revel in who God is, and I'm not just talking about abstract glory to God, but think specifically about your God, the God who has saved you. If you're married, the God who has personalized, custom-made a, a wife for you out of his goodness and his grace. Think about that God. Love that God. Glory in his great design that marriage is for your good and for his glory. Feed that love for God. Think about the fact that this is how the Apostle Paul argues. Stick with me for a minute. You, you can think more about this after, but let me just like put some thoughts in your head that you can chew on. Jesus argues... Paul, the Apostle Paul argues, he's writing to a church that's giving, members are giving themselves to, to buy prostitutes, thinking that it's okay. And, of course, Paul has to say it's not okay. But the way that he argues is that you, you, your body is not your own. If you're a Christian, you have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, a costly and precious Price indeed. How then? It, you're, you're for him. You're for his service. How can you then take this body that's been purchased and unite it to some hooker? So think about your redemption. Think about what, what it costs Jesus to pay for your sin and to purchase you. He hasn't purchased you so that you can go rush headlong back into your filth. He's, he's bought you with a price and for a purpose. So feed those, feed your love with those precious thoughts about your God and your Savior. And then feed your love for your spouse. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 19 tells us to delight in the wife of your youth. Delight in her. The Bible's quite realistic, quite graphic in a good way let her breasts satisfy you always Re rejoice in this gift delight in her be ravished by her love and vice versa I'm speaking just hopefully you can make the substitutions as it applies to you but your spouse he, he's not some bum he's not just a bum that comes home and puts his feet up he's 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 a the man, he's the father of your children. He, he's a selfless man that has busted his hump, not just all day, but all week and all lifetime in order to 
care for you and provide for you and lead his family. Love him. Not some, not some, some other dude who, here's the thing. I'm sorry, you, you got me off on a rant here. I know I got to end. But if you're going to, think about this, if you're going to give yourself to adultery, you have to, you're going to be doing some pretty selective kinds of thinking, okay? You're going to be thinking that this third-party guy, this other guy, is like he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, he, he's loving, he's tender, he's romantic, he listens to me, he talks to me. You're, what you're doing is you're choosing to be selective. You're only thinking about all of the, the prominent, wonderful things about this potential guy. Isn't that true? You're forgetting the fact that he's a, he's a bum. I mean, at the very least, he's, he's about to commit adultery, so he's, he's worthless. He, he, he's, if you think that, if you think that, um, you think about it, he, he's committing adultery with you. How is he, he's going to keep doing that. Okay, this is not, this is not a great dude, it, but you're just thinking about everything that's wonderful about him. I'm suggesting, it just has a practical help. I'm, I'm not telling you to bury your head in the sand, but if you're going to just be selective in your thinking, why not do that on the front end and, and choose to focus on everything about your spouse that is wonderful and a blessing to you? Why do you have to focus and nitpick on all of the things that you think you're getting cheated out of, all of the things that could be better? Why not focus on all of the lovely things and so feed the love that you have in your heart for your spouse. And be with your spouse regularly. I said, I said before that um, physical intimacy not just consummates this covenantal one flesh relationship, but it commemorates it and it cultivates it. And so the, the Apostle Paul can write to married couples and say, to say, don't withhold yourself from each other. That's dangerous. That's a recipe for disaster. There's only one exception to doing that, and that is if there's a specific thing that you need to pray about and, and fast, so to speak. But even at that, don't do that for long. Come back together soon so that the devil will not get a foothold. Starve. Here's some help for former adulteries, people that Adulterers, people that desperately don't want to commit adultery, even in their minds, starve your lust, feed your love, and above all, look to the Lord Jesus Christ who has justified you, and look to the Holy Spirit who has washed you and who is sanctifying you. Look to the God who has been so good to you and who loves you so much. Amen? Amen.